0: Awesome. Thank you, John. I know. That, hey, give John a round of applause for the announcements. Sometimes he feels a little insecure about his announcements, but they're really good. I think, he's, yeah, I think he does a great job, so thanks for those announcements, John. That was awesome. Uh, hey, so welcome uh, to the Vineyard. I'm kind of in the last part, the third part of a three-part teaching uh, series sort of thing, kind of, that I've been doing. Uh, and so you're probably thinking that I must be out of things to say by now. But the truth is, I'm not, and it just gives me more and more things to say as I keep going, so uh, it's great. So basically, what we're going to do is we're going to keep building on the last couple of teachings. So if you have not been here for uh, the last two messages, so that would have been uh, January 10th and January 3rd, uh, go back and listen to those because, you know, there's some good stuff in there. There's some not good, so good stuff in there, but it's it's worth it, I think. So what I want to do is... Uh, kind of continued to discuss this idea of looking to the future and looking at this idea of unity among the generations, right? And, and actually uh, kind of building toward the future. How do we do that in the church? How do we do that as uh, the people of God? And, and, and what's that going to look like for us uh, going forward? So we started off kind of looking back on 2020 uh, sort of as the, man, I keep stepping on this thing. Uh, as as the year that we all would like to forget, uh, and and we were kind of thinking about well what was God doing in that and where is He taking us next you know how does He want us to uh, proceed and then back a couple weeks ago on the tenth we talked about the idea of the generations coming together and we talked about what God's doing next we look at we looked at Ezra chapter three uh, where they're coming back and they're rebuilding the temple and they finished the foundation for the second temple and. You know, the, the younger generation, they're celebrating, they're excited. And then some of the older generation, they were, they were weeping and they were comparing it to the first temple. And so we just kind of talked about how, you know, what we want to be doing is, is approaching the new thing that God's doing with excitement and anticipation, because we know that it's going to be good because he's good, right? So that's kind of the, the, the basis of what we talked about before. So this week, I want to take a perspective that's a little bit less corporate so a couple weeks ago, we talked about, you know, the church a lot, right? And we talked about, well, what's the church doing and what's the church going to look like? And, and today I want to talk more about what are we doing? What are we doing about that new thing that God's doing and how does it affect our lives? How do we step into it and steward it well? That's one of our core values, stewardship. I want to talk about what that means for you at every stage of your life uh, and, and why I believe it's something that's so important to be aware of. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll talk about some of this stuff. So, Holy Spirit, we just welcome you. God, I just ask for uh, more of your presence right now over every person in this room. Lord, would you just begin to uh, just tenderize our hearts for transformation, Holy Spirit? That that we would just be transformed by your presence. That you would that you would come inside of us. That you would teach us something new about you, Jesus. That you would just quiet our minds, you'd settle us down, you'd slow us down. All the voices, all the tasks, all the things that we were thinking about when we came into this room this morning, Lord, we we need respite from those things, and so Holy Spirit, would you just come and and, uh, give us rest, give us rest as we experience your presence, amen. All right, so we're going to talk about a story from the Bible. Uh, there's all kinds of wild, interesting stories in the Bible. One of my favorites is the stories about Elijah and Elisha. And so I'm going to talk about Elijah and Elisha this morning. Uh, most of the time when we preach out of these passages, well, not us, but, you know, when people preach out of these passages in First and 2nd Kings, they're talking about all sorts of Ahabs and Jezebels and politically charged stuff, and, you know, they're calling names. and do, Well, we're actually going to talk about something important this morning. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that keeps us from missing the big picture, right? And what I want to do is I'm just going to run through this story sort of in a way that I would tell you a story from my own life uh, because that's how I remember the Bible. I don't know about you, but like sometimes I read the Bible and it, I just have a hard time getting it to stick, right? And I mean, I, it's supposed to stick with me, right? I'm a, I'm a seminary student. I'm supposed to be able to sit down and read the Bible and, you know, get the whole thing. But really, that's just not how it works all the time. It's a lot easier for me sometimes when somebody just tells it to me like a story. So here's what you need to know. In 1 Kings 17, this guy Elijah shows up and all sorts of wacky stuff happens, right? He's doing stuff with Ahab and Jezebel. There's some ravens that come and feed him bread. Uh, there's wars. There's evil prophets. There's a couple miracles. It's, it's nuts, right? Uh, and, and, you know, if you need more of that, go read 1 Kings and 2 Kings on your own but we're going to focus on something different. So the reason that those stories stood out to me today in particular is because there's an overarching theme uh, that kind of like threads these stories together. And that theme is actually that God set Elijah up to do something in a way that he's setting you up to do something. And so that's what we need to get out of this. So I think this story is beautiful because uh, it kind of sets up a relationship between Elijah and Elisha that I really want to see reproduced in my own life. When I read this story, there's something about what happens between those two men, and, and, I, and I read it and I think, man, I want that. I want those kinds of mentor-mentee relationships because it's so important, you'll see, for the development of who Elisha becomes, the way that Elijah postures himself toward Elisha and the way that Elisha desires to have relationship with Elijah. So, That's the important thing here. So Elijah, he's doing all kinds of cool prophet stuff as soon as he shows up in 1 Kings 17. And in chapter 19, he's on a mountain because that's when you go and you have an important appointment with God. And it's a really cool encounter. So there's wind and there's an earthquake and there's some fire and he's in a cave. Uh, It's nuts. So picture it. Wind, earthquake, fire in a cave on a mountain. Okay? So 1 Kings 19, 15, and 16 says, And the Lord said to him, "'Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. "'And when you arrive,' pay attention to this, "'you shall anoint Hazael, Hazel, whatever, to be king over Syria, "'and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, "'and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Abel, Mahola, "'you shall anoint to be prophet in your place.'" The confusing names aren't really that important. What we have here is a divine to-do list. God gives Elijah three important things that he wants him to do. Number one, anoint the next king of Syria. Number two, anoint the next king of Israel. Number three, anoint his successor as the prophet, right? So then... Uh, In the next few verses, just like immediately, he comes down from the mountain, he finds Elisha, throws his coat on top of him for some reason, Uh, Elisha kisses his parents, he sacrifices some oxen, boils their flesh, and they're off to save the world. You can't make this stuff up. So his to-do list, do we have the next one? His to-do list now looks like this, right? Done. Checked off that last one. So he's making really good progress uh, because he has one-third of the to-do list done and we're only 10 verses in. So, I mean, he's trucking. So we find ourselves then on an eight-year journey where Elijah and Elisha have done all sorts of things together. They're dealing with, you know, the prophets of Baal and Ahab and some guy named Ben-Hadad and other characters. It's cool. Uh, and, and it's a great journey that lasts for the rest of 1 Kings, so you should read it. And then we get to 2 Kings chapter 2. So this is kind of the next stop on our journey through the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And it seems like Elijah forgot about his to-do list. Uh, you know, he came down from the mountain, and for eight whole years, he forgot to do anything else on the list, and then he just ascends to heaven. Has that ever happened to you? Right? I mean, that's going to be my excuse, I think, the next time that I don't have my to-do list done. I'm just going to be like, well, I ascended to heaven, so I forgot. Uh, so before we go any further, I want to read what happens in Second Kings 2. So this is going to be a little longer. Bear with me may need a sip of coffee first. So, now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. And Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. So what's happening? Basically what's happening is this day has come that has been prophesied where Elijah is going to you know, be carried off to heaven in uh, chariots and, and horses of fire. Right? This, this kind of happened earlier in the story where God let him know this was going to happen. And the day has come and they're aware. And so what Elijah is saying to Elisha is, hey, you stay here. I'm going to go because it's time for me to go. And Elisha says, no, I'm coming with you. So we keep reading. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. So again, what happens, right? They're going to the next town, and Elijah says, Stay here. I'm leaving. This is it. This is where I leave you. And Elisha says, No, I'm coming with you. So then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. You would think that they could tell this story in a little more interesting fashion, but they just sort of like copied and pasted it probably down to the next, uh, and, then, and then filled in the blanks with different names. But please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan, Then something interesting happens. Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water parted to the one side and to the other, and the two of them could go over on dry ground. That's cool. Can you just picture that, right? He, like, takes his coat off, and he rolls it up, and he slaps the water, and the water, that's cool. I like that. So then, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. So basically, he finally gets it, right? He finally understands. I mean, Elisha has, like, trailed him kind of all over the map to all these different cities. And he finally understands, wait a minute, maybe this guy wants something from me before I leave. So Elisha said, please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. So 12 verses later, you know, the thing finally happens that we're like waiting for it to happen, right? And, and he gets taken up, but not before Elijah gives him this blessing, So there's a few key things that I want to draw out of this interaction between the two of them. This is where we need to start to pay attention because this is where it starts to really apply to us. First, Elisha is persistent in following Elijah and extracting all the information that he can from him. There's something there. There's something in that. You know, When we pursue one another with a heart for learning everything that God has placed on our lives, Uh, the product of that is extremely powerful. Let me say that again, because you didn't seem to get it. Uh, When we pursue one another with everything we have for the promises that God has put on our lives, the product of that is extremely powerful. There are some folks in this room right now who carry an extremely powerful spiritual legacy. You have such an important revelation of who Jesus is. You carry a piece of him that is only revealed through you. And I, and I would be willing to bet that somewhere along the line, that came from you pursuing someone who came before you to get what they knew. Can anyone identify with that? Does that sound familiar to anyone? Did anyone have an important mentor? Did anyone have an important teacher in their life who they pursued to get their knowledge, to get their wisdom? That's a key piece of how we move forward. So I'm going to address this in a minute, but but when we take the time to pursue the spiritual wisdom of others, it can have a dynamic impact that's far greater from where it started. So in other words, you might have something that feels small, From God. A small promise, a small hope, a small prophetic word. And the impact of that thing is entirely determined by your faithfulness to continue to steward it and and raise people up in that thing and train people up in that thing. So, you know, when we say the phrase, I don't know if you've ever heard us say this here before, my ceiling is your floor. That's a very serious thing. It's a very serious commitment to, to, to live out. And I would say that, you know, that's something that's kind of been on the vineyard movement since the very beginning, is this idea of my ceiling is your floor. So what does that mean? That means that Kevin has revelation on his life, right? He has gifts from God. He has things that he has learned over time. And, and I would like to think that Kevin wants his disciples to start where he finishes, not start where he started, right? Because we aren't doing this to repeat each other's spiritual journeys. We're doing this to take up, you know, the revelation that we have from God, the the goodness of God that we've come to understand, the the holiness of God, the righteousness of God that we've come to understand. We pick it up and we carry it forward from where the people before us left off. And I think that there's, there's, uh, there's kind of a, There's attitudes, I'll say this, there's attitudes in the younger generation that keep this from happening. And there's attitudes in the older generation that keep this from happening, right? Because I have met people, none of them are in this room, I don't think, uh, who, who almost seem to relish in me repeating their mistakes. They almost seem to enjoy... When I make a mistake, and then they can say, oh, I already made that mistake 40 years ago. And, and it makes me think, well, why didn't you tell me it was coming? Why didn't you let me know that I was about to make that mistake? And then there's young people who look at the older generation, and they say, there's nothing there for me. I'm going on my own journey. I'm striking out on my own path. And what you've done is forsaken your head start. It doesn't mean that your life has to look exactly the same as the people who came before you. What it means is there are spiritual principles, there are things that those people have learned along the way that can get you a head start. And if you don't take advantage of it, you're starting behind the pack. So, so as Older generations and younger generations, we have got to grasp that idea because when we talk about advancing the kingdom so God can build the church, the only way that we advance the kingdom is if we go further than the people who came before us. And if we spend our whole lives just achieving uh, the level of, of, you know, whatever that the people who came before us did, then we're not advancing anything. We're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. So do you want to see the kingdom advanced? Yeah. Do you want to see the kingdom advanced in Oxford? Yeah. Okay, then if you have been walking around on earth for a while, you have a responsibility to deposit the things that you've learned in the younger generation. And, and if you have not been walking around on the earth as long, you have a responsibility to pursue the older generation for the keys that they hold to the things that you want to achieve, even if it doesn't look like you want it to look like. So second, Elijah knows that his hour is coming to depart, and he does not shrug Elisha off. He never says, stop following me, right? He, he starts out every time he says, you know, I'm going to go, you stay here. But then when Elisha says, no, I'm coming with you, he doesn't say, no, you're not. Did you notice that? He doesn't argue with him because... You know, another way of saying that would be, I've done my time, I've been doing ministry for decades, I've made my contribution, I've already left my mark. That's the attitude that that Elijah didn't have. And I believe that in the last leg of that journey, where Elisha was following him from city to city, and then eventually saw him, you know, taken up to heaven, there were some extremely important things that he learned during that period of time. And so what I will say is, you know, we, we've got to continue to pursue people even when they're in the twilight of their lives, right? I mean, something that, this is maybe a little bit of a, of a rant or whatever, but like something that society has lost value for is, is people who, you know, they feel like their time is past. right? And, and I mean... This is happening, you know, this is happening in in Eastern Europe, you know, where people like over a certain age are being euthanized. And I mean, that's really a thing. Like, that's really a thing. And and what we can't do is we can't afford to lose the lessons that the older generation carries. The third thing that I want to point out is what happens next in this story. So Elijah gets taken up. He's gone. Elisha is the prophet now. And it's actually cool if you keep reading, you know, then he basically like leaves the place where where they were, and he kind of repeats the same miracle that Elijah did on their way. You know, he smacks the water with his coat, and it parts, and he comes through, and everybody says, hey, he's the prophet now. They get it. Um, but then, then the next thing that I want to point out is that in 2 Kings chapter 8, do you know what happens? So you remember, he forgot his to-do list, right? There's still two things that are left undone, and he's gone. So he only got 33% of it done. Uh, but then... Elisha anoints the next king of Syria in 2 Kings chapter 8. His disciple, Elisha, goes and does the next thing on the to do list. So, see, there, he crossed it out. And, and uh, what's significant about this is that Elijah didn't fail. Elijah didn't fail because he didn't get those three things done. Elijah succeeded. Because his disciple got those things done. So you might have noticed at the beginning of the message, this message this morning is called, Your Homework is Due in 100 Years. The reason that I called this message, Your Homework is Due in 100 Years, is because you're not going to be the one that turns it in. And you're only going to get it partway done. And if we take that perspective, if we take that attitude... What we're going to be more concerned with, see, trying to get your homework done and get it, on t- get it in on time is selfish. Trying to get your homework done and get it, get it in on time is selfish because what you're worried about is you're worried about your own grade, your own result, your own, uh, your, the, what you get from that, right? But we need to be more concerned about getting our homework turned in in 100 years, and we need to worry about the people who are going to finish it. Is that making sense to you? That's not selfish, right? Because in that circumstance, you're not concerned about your own grade and you're not concerned about what you get from turning your homework in on time. You're concerned about what the next person gets, what the next person is equipped with in order to get your homework turned in in 100 years. So then the next thing that seriously blows my mind happens in the next chapter. It happens in 2 Kings chapter 9, Elisha, the prophet, so he's over the school of the prophets now, right? And he's training up uh, all these young prophets. So you keep hearing him refer to the sons of the prophets. These are just like, you know, I, we don't even know like who they are, but they're they're these sons of the prophets. And so he calls one of them up. He says, "Hey, uh, you know, I need you to go to Ramoth Gilead, of course, and anoint Jehu, the next king of Israel." So do you realize what's happening now? One of Elijah's disciples' disciples crosses the third thing off the to-do list. That is what we call a powerful spiritual legacy. What's happened here is that the whole story comes full circle. Elijah had a call from God, and you know I'm sure in the beginning he didn't know exactly what that looked like. He didn't know precisely what he would be doing for the rest of the days of his life. And and I'm sure that at the beginning of your uh, walk with Jesus, if if that's something that you're doing, uh, you didn't know exactly what that would look like for the rest of your life. And some people get really concerned about figuring it out. Some people almost get obsessed with what is my calling. You know, where, where am I supposed to be doing this thing, living this out? What, you know, how is it going to be fulfilled in my lifetime? And we think, you know, that we're going to have some sort of like crowning accomplishment that, that stands over all the other things that we've done in our lives. But maybe the crowning accomplishment that stands over all the other things that you've done in your life is the disciple whose disciple whose disciple is going to turn in your homework in 100 years. So... If you've been walking around on earth for longer than some of us, ask yourself this question What might God be doing in your life that you have a responsibility to equip someone else to carry out? Because that's a powerful assignment. It's an extremely powerful assignment. And, and, it, and it makes me think of Jesus. Because, you know, when Jesus was walking around on the earth and he was doing all this cool stuff, like, he accomplished a lot right he did a lot of miracles and he you know preached a lot of good sermons and uh, a lot of people followed him and it was really cool he made a lot of disciples but but Jesus goal wasn't even to get it all done in his lifetime of course you know Jesus dies on the cross and resurrects and and so in the spiritual realm right Jesus has has won the victory right he has completed his task so that's not what i'm saying don't hear what i'm not saying what i'm saying is that Jesus understood this idea that his assignment was to train up the people who would train up the people who would turn in his homework. Because that's what the church is, right? When Jesus invents the church and sends it off on its mission, he has an understanding that the assignment given to him from the Father to proclaim and and bring and demonstrate the kingdom on the earth would be completed through the people who came after him. So who's going to be your Elisha? Who's going to be the one or ones who take the initiative to see to it that your dreams don't die with you? Have you ever thought of that? Have you, have you ever given that any thought? Because it's extremely important. And, and I can tell you that, you know, there are some important uh, spiritual legacies that I'm participating in right now. And I think that this would be a good thing for us to think about and focus on because it's been extremely important to the vineyard movement since the beginning. There's actually some people who are really good at this. I'm one degree of separation from John Wimber with four of my mentors because people have done such an effective job of stewarding you know, the, the gifts that God gave that man and the, and the insight and the prophetic wisdom that God gave that man. It's awesome. It's so good. So who's going to be your Elisha? And if you're someone who's been walking around on the earth, you know, not as long, uh, where might you find someone like Elijah? Maybe in this room, probably in this room. You know, ask yourself, uh, how do you relate to Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2? Who are you running after to get every last little bit of wisdom that they carry before they're gone? Who is that? I, I, it's an important question for you to ask. Of course we're running after Jesus. Of course we want Jesus' wisdom. You know, what I'm talking about right now is, is discipleship and that, and that mentorship relationship. I think it's so important. We've got to be going after that. One of the things that I'm famous for is deciding that I want to do something and then tracking down everyone who's ever done it. Ask anyone who knows me. That's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of my thing. That's what I do. So, you know, when we go to conferences and stuff, I'm like, I'm like running down all these people that I've always wanted to talk to, you know, and, and, and we're having these conversations. And they, t- I mean, just ask Van Cochran and Dave Workman. They can't shake me loose. I, you know, I keep emailing them and I, I'm not going to stop. So I want to provoke you, I want to provoke you Amen. to act on your spiritual legacy. And if you can't, you know, name one that you're uh, participating in, think about that, work on it. Because I believe that. God has assignments for all of us that, that don't just begin with us. I, I think that he has already started so many amazing things on the earth, and he's going to release new ideas and new innovation and, 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 and new ways of thinking. And, you know, it's going to be amazing. But I think it's going to happen in the context of, of things that he's already started. I really do. So I want to talk a little bit more about a spiritual legacy. What is a spiritual legacy? That sounds weird. That sounds very, um, you know, spiritual. Well, a legacy, put most simply, is something that is handed down from ones who came before. And when I was about 10 years old, I met the first person in my life who would become something of a lifelong mentor uh, in a spiritual sense. It was somebody that I hadn't met before, uh, but I had heard of. And uh, we had a good 10-year run of, of friendship. And um, I can just name countless lessons of, you know, from our, our time that we spent together. Uh, but there was one thing in particular that really stuck with me. This mentor of mine really ignited my passion for lifelong learning. So it was something that had kind of been there, you know, for a while. But I can point to specific instances where this guy, with this guy where that just, I mean, it was like it, it increased. Before I had ever had a born-again experience with Jesus, uh, you know, this guy was giving me, uh, the accounts of a Dutch watchmaker, Corey Tenboom, and his, er, her father, Casper Tenboom. And I'm reading these stories, and the Holy Spirit's encountering my heart, and I had never even met Jesus before. And we had long conversations about uh, leadership and what it meant to inspire people. And we talked about the word legacy a lot, which is why I suppose I'm talking to you about it today. And I learned some intensely valuable lessons about being a part of something bigger than myself. I learned that being part of an institution, involves having a part to play and doing the same thing that we've been doing before. But being a part of a spiritual legacy involves pushing the limits of what's been done before and taking the values of the people who came before to new heights and uncharted territory. And when I came to, the, to this vineyard in uh, 2016, what I really felt strongly that God said to me was, you will not uh, be able to serve your own assignment, your own task, until you have taken up John Richter's task and served it. And, and that, I, I wrestled with that, and I was like, what does that mean, God? Like, Why, why are you saying that to me? And what I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is that learning to serve someone else's vision is the thing that, that takes us on the journey of learning what it looks like to push forward in your own. And by the time you've done that, Your own vision probably looks at least a little bit like the vision you've been serving. That's what discipleship is all about. It's about sharing the key pillars of what you have learned from someone and reproducing those things in other people and giving them the freedom to interpret them through their own context and their own experience and their own lens. It's so important. The church is intended to be a facility that's dedicated to the reproduction of Uh, the radical, subversive, compassionate, intensely countercultural way of Jesus. That's what we're doing here. We're, We're chasing Jesus like Elisha chased Elijah. A spiritual legacy requires pushing the limits of what's been done before by those who came before you and taking the key parts of that to new heights and uncharted territory in your life. That's what we mean when we say, my ceiling is your floor. That's what we truly mean by that. So think about that. That's important. That's important for us to live that. The reason that I'm talking about all this is because we have to grasp that, uh, you know, your commission from Jesus is to participate in and reproduce a kind of spiritual legacy. And, and it has a context. It has a purpose. For us here in Oxford, it might look different than it would in downtown Cincinnati. It might look different than it would in, uh, you know, in Columbus or in... London or in Hong Kong. See, Jesus had this, this thing that he'd been given by the Father. This revelation that, you know, the Father, the Father was like him and he was like the Father and he was only doing what he saw the Father doing and he taught it to the 12 and, and it was taught to the 70 and then it was taught to the early church and then it was taught to someone who taught it to you. The purpose of all of this is, is to take those lessons that we've learned and and allow them to take root in someone's life and actually see them produce fruit 500 years from now. I mean that. I seriously mean that. This is the blueprint for how God reveals himself in the scriptures. The whole overarching story from Genesis to Revelation. Where does it start? You know, it starts right in the garden, and then we have Noah, and then we have Abraham. And Abraham hears the voice of God. And he doesn't have a Bible, and he doesn't have a pastor, and he doesn't have any of this, right? He hears the voice of God and trusts that that was the voice of God and then passes it on to his son Isaac. And then he passes it on to his son Jacob. And then he passes it on to his sons, and eventually we have a nation called Israel. And then eventually we have a Messiah that comes out of this nation called Israel. right? And, and Jesus comes in and delivers spiritual teaching that has never been improved upon in 2,000 years. And the reason we have that is because there were people in the beginning who were faithful to steward the small thing. And so what is the small thing that you have to steward? I want, I want to conclude today's talk with a challenge that's sort of similar to the last time we were together. You know, we all make goals at some point or another. We, we make short-term goals, long-term goals, health goals, relationship goals, work goals, hobby goals, financial goals. Uh, Those things are awesome, but I want you to forget about them for the next week and uh, introduce you to a new kind of goal that you've maybe never considered. I want to challenge you to make some 100-year goals, and your homework is due in 100 years. That might sound foolish or useless, but I think it's actually been an extremely powerful tool for me because 100-year goals are like vision statements, our vision statement here at the Vineyard is to transform the Oxford community with the kingdom of heaven and fulfill its prophetic destiny to produce kingdom leaders to the nations. Now, would I like to see that cross off the list in my lifetime? Of course. That would be amazing. Right, That would be amazing if we crossed that off the list, but the purpose of a vision statement is kind of the thing that you're continually running after, and I've never encountered a church or an organization that accomplished its vision statement. Not to say it can't be done, but what I'm saying is that uh, I don't think it'll be finished in my lifetime, and that actually encourages me because it shows me that I'm responsible for the people who are going to turn in my homework in 100 years. I think that, you know we have some awesome resources related to this idea of uh, kind of cultivating you know, a, a spiritual legacy and talking about goal setting and some of those things. So if you want more of that, take me to coffee. I'll tell you all about it. Uh, but make some goals that only your disciples will be able to accomplish. Because if you're not making goals that outlast you, you're coasting. If you're not making goals that will outlast you, you've quit. That might sound really harsh. I mean, that might, that might sound harsh for me to say, but, but I, I'm, I'm saying that from such a sincere place that I want, you know, this, these are some of my favorite people in the world. I want to see all of us take up this task of having 100-year goals and pursuing the people who are going to come after us. Because, you know, a 100-year goal is something that allows us to approach Father God, with childlikeness and wonder and dream about potential for the future because we don't know what it's going to look like when the next generation crosses it off the list. So I'm going to pray and then we'll worship and we'll have some ministry. But I want you to think about this while we, while we worship and while we pray. I want you to think about like really, really big picture. Who, who are my Elijahs? Who are my Elishas? Think about your life. Revisit the stories of of your mentors and the people who taught you, the people that you learn things from. Maybe they're teachers or professors or parents or grandparents or pastors or whatever it is. Think about those things because, for me, that stirs up excitement for what's coming next. And think about your Elishas. Think about the people that you see uh, potential in. Ask God to highlight people to you who you are supposed to come to, you know, and, and say, hey, what, what has your spiritual journey been like so far? You know, people, people that you can deposit the things inside of that you've learned. So, let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for um, just the opportunity to, to press into this idea of what it means for us to make disciples, to truly take up this great commission and make disciples uh, of all nations, of all ethnic groups. And God, I just ask for a deeper revelation of what it means for us to find our uh, Elishas and to find our Elijahs in our life, the people that we're going to chase after to pursue for the wisdom that you've placed in their lives, the people that we are going to chase after to pursue to give away the wisdom that you've given us in our lives. God, I ask that even while we worship, that you would uh, just seriously highlight people in a powerful way that would uh, start to reveal who are these people that we're supposed to, to pursue. And where we feel like we lack vision or we lack uh, hope for the future, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just come and touch our hearts and, and renew us and revive us in worship and, and, and show us a vision of what it looks like in a hundred years when our homework gets turned in. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.